Um, so we're still catching up from our snow day. Um, but what we'll do is, have you guys uh, started, finished, um, looked at uh, the aspirin papers? How many people have finished? All right, good. How many people have started? Um, all right. We'll, I hope, get to a little bit of it. Today we'll talk a little bit more about uh, Jane Eyre first and then Jeffrey Aspern. Um, and um, at any rate, we'll uh, talk about it. Uh, we'll finish talking about the Aspern papers tomorrow. Uh, there is a way to connect them. Um, it's not entirely artificial to connect them. Um, you won't be surprised that they're easily connectable through Milton, but Milton is like a super node in English literature. You can connect anything to anything <laughs> by going through Milton. Um, and we'll certainly have to do a little bit of that, but we, that may not be um, the only or the most um, promising way of connecting them. Um, we were talking on Monday about the question um, and a certain person named Mexi's Dubaity about the question as to whether um, you should think of Jane Eyre as a feminist novel or not. So if you're looking for a paper topic, um, that's one that you could think about either way. Um, whether it is, whether it isn't, whether in some ways it is, um, and in some ways it fails to be. Yeah? I mean, I, I would say it's proto-feminist. Proto-feminist. Feminist, yeah. yeah. Um, and where would the difference between proto-feminist and feminist be? Well, there's a modern idea of what feminism is at this moment, and mm -hmm. there's kind of an idea of what was progressive at that time, but isn't that progressive now? Maybe. Um, there, that, that could also be an issue. Um, and I certainly don't want to mansplain this, even though that's my job. <laughs> um, but um, the question of the question of what proto would mean in proto feminism um, is itself not not maybe that obvious an answer. Um, but at any rate, if that's what you want to write about, it it's um, it sounds like something good to write about. <laughs> um, and again, I remind you that um, papers that disagree with us are the best kinds of papers. Um, don't disagree for the sake of disagreeing, but disagree because you disagree and um, show us, I don't mean the royal we, I mean um, um, the, your, your section leaders. Um, show us the errors of our ways. Um, and uh, that would um, mean that you would have something that you want to um, press hard in your argumentation um, because you want to be persuasive and that's what you should always want in a paper. Don't disagree about that in your paper. Don't say, no, paper shouldn't be persuasive, you're wrong, um, because then you would be contradicting yourself. And I guess that's okay also. Um, all right, so just to uh, um, talk um, somewhat more about Jane Eyre and the extent to which um, it is a, a wish-fulfilling novel, that is the extent to which um, we get the happy ending we want, which is um, the happy ending of the marriage plot, which is that the OTP um, becomes the OTP. Um, everyone know that term? Important mm -hmm. term in narrative theory. What is it? One true pair. Yeah, the one true pair or the one true pairing. Um, that is, it's 
that's the couple that counts. That's the couple that we want to see get together. Often what you will see um, in stories is various possibilities, various um, mix and match possibilities to people interested in the same third person, um, people interested um, wrongly um, in people who are not interested in them. Um, but the OTP in a marriage plot is the happy ending when both members of the final um, and central um, uh, couple are really, really happy to be getting together. So um, OTP is a TV trope and a fan fiction term, but it's a um, very important and deep one. Um, if you guys don't know about tvtropes.org, you should, um, because it will teach you more about narrative theory than any narrative theorist. Um, and um, But it'll teach you the sorts of things that narrative theorists are also thinking about. Um, it's both a really good introduction and a really good summation of narrative theory, which is a little bit what we will be um, talking about today um, and tomorrow and for the next little while. Is that something you're going to be talking about, Mrs. Dalloway, as well? Yeah, so, so yes, narrative theory um, for the win. Um, so the... OTP, obviously, it's wish-fulfilling in the sense that Rochester and Jane get together. Uh, what would be terrible, what you might fear a little bit on a first reading, is if Rochester and Sinjin get together. Um, and that would be maybe good for God, um, and maybe good for Christianity, and maybe good for the heathen, as um, Sinjin uh, conceives them to be, whom he wishes to convert to Christianity in um, what is a proto-colonialist moment. Um, but it would not be good for us. And us, who are us? We are the reader, um, the person who the narrator of Jane Eyre addresses from time to time. Again, on Monday, I quoted the most famous sentence of the novel, Reader, I Married Him. Um, but the reader is addressed often um, in Jane Eyre by the narrator. And it's the reader whose wishes the novel finally, um, in one way or another, um, caters to. It's the reader that um, what happens in the novel happens for. Um, it is for us. It's what we care to see happen. Um, Non-true pairs, for example, would be Sinjin and Rosamond. We may think that that's an obvious couple and that they're going to get together, um, but Sinjin says, no, it's not going to happen. He wants it to happen. He loves her. She seems to love him. One of the surprises about Jane Eyre, though, is that Jane gets that Rosamond isn't good enough for Sinjin. That is what we are once again being led, as um, Charlotte Bronte leads us several times in the course of the novel, to think we know what the resolution is going to look like. Um, that Sinjin and Rosamond will get together and Jane will have helped to make that possible by insisting on doing Rosamond's portrait and by talking to Sinjin about it and by making Sinjin see what he really feels and what he really needs and um, by bringing Sinjin to himself. Um, that's what, from the very start, the novel has flirted with that idea that if only people understood themselves better and understood each other better, 
or let's put it this way, that if people understood themselves better, they would understand others better. And if they understood others better, they would understand themselves better. It's, that's Rochester's point of view, that Rochester is essentially always telling Jane in the first phase of their relationship up until the, um, the uh, marriage um, or non-marriage, up until the prevented marriage, Rochester is always working in a way that is kind of standard in the novel, in a novel, in the marriage plot novel of the day, in Jane Austen. He's always working to tell Jane Eyre that she is a more impressive figure than she believes herself to be, um, that she should imagine herself as having a claim on others, that she should, as we would put it in the cant of um, contemporary self-help speak, that she should believe in herself, that um, she should be more self-confident, that she shouldn't imagine that Rochester is not interested in her, but is interested in someone who Jane fears is her superior, certainly her social superior, and who Jane fears is also um, perhaps, if not her intellectual superior, at least that Rochester will think that she's inter her intellectual superior. Um, and Rochester is um, constantly there to assure her that that's not true. Um, that the fact that Jane isn't pretty, if it is a fact, that the fact that Jane um, comes from the kind of background that she does, that everything about Jane that is officially self-effacing um, doesn't prevent Rochester from seeing her actual um, extraordinariness, um, that Jane is an extraordinary figure. Um, Jane sort of knows that about herself, but she doesn't feel that knowing it about herself gives her a claim on others. Um, she also um, believes in self-restraint. Um, one of the interesting things, however, is that she does know it about herself. Um, Rochester would be wrong if he thought that Jane undervalued herself very much in private. Um, Jane knows when she's right, and Jane is not full of self-doubt about her own judgment. What she's full of self-doubt about, or what she's full of doubt about, is how other people judge her. Um, she's not full of doubt about her judgment. As I say, that's something unusual about her. That's where her stubbornness comes from. That's um, at one point late in the novel, she describes how she will, how she will um, accept a lot of straws until finally the last straw makes her lash out and not take um, any more the um, um, crap that is being given to her by people who think that she's the kind of person who will, who will allow herself to take infinite amounts of crap. Um, and that's a new, as I say, that's a new character. Um, Jane's, um, Jane's flare-ups of anger, um, that's something that you won't have seen in a character um, like that before, in a heroine who is going to be part of the OTP. Um, like that before. At least you won't see it as um, a good part of her character. You may sometimes see it as in um, Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew as something that a character will learn to tame in herself. That is that spiritedness can be put to more constructive uses, which is what the ideology of Taming of the Shrew is. It's great that she's, if you know the play, it's great that Kate is spirited, but that spiritedness has to be tamed, hence the word taming. There's nothing about taming 
in Jane Eyre. She is not supposed to be tamed. It's not a novel about a spirited woman who has to be tamed. It's a novel about a woman who is spirited and whose spiritedness is something that she knows of herself but that others don't except for Rochester. Um, so there, so what, what um, and maybe this is a, a way of describing this as proto-feminist, um, what um, Bronte is doing is giving us a character who, on the one hand, um, is put in a situation where being understood and being valued rightly is what a happy ending will look like. And that's a kind of standard situation. Someone who understands and values her rightly will um, make her happy um, by giving her a place where she can resolve the issues that are part of her personality. Um, and that would be a happy ending. However, I think the great thing about Jane Eyre is that she doesn't, there is no idea in this novel that she has to resolve those issues, that she has to figure out how to be a more mature version of herself. She doesn't have to figure that out. Or if she does have to figure it out, it's not thanks to men. It's thanks to her own way of realizing um, that even impressive men, and this happens twice, the two really impressive men in the novel are Rochester and Sinjin, that even impressive men can be just completely bat-crazy wrong about what they're doing and what they want and what they think and what they imagine is appropriate. Um, and Rochester trying to marry her when he's already married to the still-living Bertha Mason, um, and Sinjin trying to marry her when he's already married to God, um, those are just simply wrong things, and she knows they're wrong things, and she feels the pressure. It's not that she doesn't feel an internal pressure um, to um, do what to do or to interact with what's good about those two men, she does. Um, but she also works out for herself that these things are wrong, and that she works out for herself that she's not going to do what they want her to do. And it's they don't help her to work this out. They don't um, help her to see um, how to um, think of herself in the world. She does it um, by herself, and she does it by herself all the way through the novel. Again, just to repeat um, how this is true from the very start, we believe, because the novel tempts us to believe, that once Mrs. Reed understands Jane, um, she will see that she's treated her badly. This is something Dickens specialized in. If you've read Oliver Twist, um, the question of how people think about Oliver, those who think the good guy, there are a lot of good guys, um, in particular Mr. Grimwig, who think badly of Oliver because they misunderstand him. And in misunderstanding him, they think that he's a different character um, from who he really is. And then when they come to understand him, they feel bad about having misunderstood him. And that saves their character. That is, if someone feels bad about how they have felt about a character whom they've misunderstood, they're a kind of King Lear or a Gloucester character. That is, they have misapprehended um, Cordelia. They have misapprehended 
Edgar. In Oliver Twist, they have misapprehended Oliver. And when they come to see that they were wrong, they feel bad. And when they feel bad, we feel better about them and there's reconciliation. Um, the characters who don't like Jane do not really misapprehend her. They say nasty things about her. They treat her badly. But it's not because they misunderstand her. And so what we don't get is a kind of novel of reconciliation where understanding solves the problems that have arisen before. And as I say, we see this, I think, quite extraordinarily. I mean, I think Jane Eyre is, is an amazingly surprising novel. Even now, it retains its power to surprise. And part of that surprise is uh, Mrs. Reed on her deathbed, where that's where um, you get reconciliation. That's where a character realizes um, that he or she has done wrong. Jane Eyre has come to be with her um, at her death. That's an amazing thing. She suffered. She's lost her son. Now she's dying. Jane Eyre is there for her, and yet she still treats and thinks of Jane as she always did. Um, and it's not that she didn't get Jane. It's that she didn't love Jane. Um, she did get her, and she didn't love her. So a standard feeling in a novel, you could say, in, in um, a standard run-of-the-mill novel is um, captured by the famous French um, proverb or maxim, to understand all is to forgive all. Um, that is often the bet that any first person um, novel makes, that if you are getting a story told by a first-person narrator, that narrator, because the narrator is addressing the reader or the narratee, we're going to talk more about the narratee, um, uh, an idea that I've already broached for you, um, but that the reader or the narratee, the narrator isn't going to be telling you stuff that isn't true on the whole. Um, or that the narrator doesn't believe is true. It's, it would be somewhat strange to read a first-person narrative written to you, written for the reader, not a first-person narrative you know, in the form of a confession or a fake confession, you know, like the usual suspects, um, for um, a fictional reader. That is, you wanted me to tell you how it was that I ended up being accused of murder. Well, here's how, here, here's how things um, happened, and then it all turns out to be a lie at the end. Sure. Um, we could understand um, lies in that situation. But if a narrative is addressing us, we assume the narrator is telling the truth. Um, what does it mean for a narrator to be telling the truth in a fictional world? Um, it means that there's no reason for the narrator to lie because it's fiction anyhow. If a narrator in a novel says, um, stuff that they've done, stuff that they felt, confesses to various things, doesn't confess to other things. Um, the fact that it's fiction means that the narrator can't really care what we think because we don't live in the same world as the narrator. Does this make sense? I'm saying this a little bit rapidly, but it's um, something that we all know, which is that if you read a first-person novel, a standard first-person novel, um, if you read a standard first-person novel, you may not trust the narrator's judgment, but you do trust the narrator's truthfulness. The narrator may say things that are false, but the falseness of what the narrator says will be because the narrator has made a mistake, for example, about 
her own motivations or his own motivations. The narrator might say something like, um, I absolutely did not love her. Um, and we might be able to see that, in fact, the narrator did love her. Um, case in point, the Aspirin Papers, um, where we have a narrator who, of course, is never lying to us. The narrator um, didn't actually murder um, Miss Juliana and then um, write this to claim that he didn't. Um, the narrator tells us, is perfectly frank with us, tells us everything, tells us much more even than he tells Mrs. Prest, um, who is the person he talks things over with, um, tells us more because, and this is just how we interact with fiction, it's a philosophical point about our interaction with fiction, a narrator tells us more because we don't inhabit the same world, because what we are doing is um, there's a doubleness with respect to our relation to a fictional narrator. And that doubleness is to the extent that we're reading what the narrator says, it's not the fictional character who is telling us those things. It is the novelist who is telling us those things. And when the novelist uses the pronoun I, it doesn't mean the same thing as the pronoun I means in the real world. What the pronoun I means in a novel is I impersonating someone in a world which is different from the world you live in. Um, am telling you what this character in that world was thinking and feeling and doing. And if you ask the question, and I think it's a, it's a really interesting question, um, and one that we will recur to, um, if you ask the question, why what determines a writer to write a story in the first person as opposed to writing it in the third person or vice versa? Um, in a sense, as, you, as some of you know, there's some stories that are written in the second person. They're very rare, but they're not, um, uh, they're, they're not um, vanishingly rare. Um, second person stories um, are, in a sense, first person stories. Um, that is, it, a second-person story would be something like, um, uh, it's been one of those days you just hate how things are going. Thank goodness you have English 1A today because that's always the high point of your days on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. You go to class really looking forward to it. And then it's a fantastically interesting class on narrative and suddenly your day is better. So you can imagine that this is called fiction. You can imagine... Um, someone writing a story in that way, and there are people who do write stories in that sense, um, but they're rare, um, and they're rare because, in a sense, they're disguised first-person narratives. Um, but another thing you could say is that all narratives, whether first or third-person, are also second-person narratives. The narrator is always talking to a narratee, to a you, um, to whom the narrator is speaking, because speech is always to someone. So if you decide between the two great kingdoms of narrative, first and third person, um, one question that it's always worth asking is, why does a storyteller decide between those two? How does a storyteller decide between those two? Why is Jane Eyre written in the first person? Why? Uh, why is Middlemarch written in the third 
person? Why does Jane Austen write in the third person? Um, that question um, has a, a multitude of answers because there are a multitude of different effects that will come out of first and third person narration. Um, but one effect or one thing that they have in common is that because they're narrations, you can trust the narrator to be telling you the truth and the reason, the truth as the narrator knows it. And the reason you can trust the narrator to be telling you the truth, paradoxically, is because none of it is true. So there's no point in lying in a situation where what you're being given is fiction anyhow. There's no aim that a narrator who is a fictional figure, all narrators are fictional, all narrators in works of fiction are fictional. They don't exist in our world. And there is no, re they only exist in the book or in the voiceover. The only reason, therefore, for a narrator to tell the story is to give you a fictional account. And it makes no sense to say that that account could contain a lie. It could, and one reason, therefore, to choose a first-person narrative is it could contain self-deception. So a first-person narrator can be deceiving, but only if she is also deceived. A first-person narrator can get things wrong, but only if they, too, are getting things wrong. But a first-person narrator won't say to you something like, um, I didn't kill her, and then uh, on page 46, and then on page 250, Miss Marple says, and so you did kill her, didn't you? And then the first person narrator says, I had to admit that I did kill her because I did, and when I told you, reader, that I didn't, I was lying. Ha, gotcha. Um, there are, again, vanishingly rare examples of novels where narrators do that, but they're experimental. The whole point is to play with a convention that is so solid that you can't imagine any good coming from playing with it. Um, so, and the reason for that is, why would you believe the narrator later? When the narrator says, OK, I did do it, tells the reader, OK, I did do it, why wouldn't that be the lie? And the answer is, it's all false. None of it is true. So the idea of a second level of falsehood, it's not, you know, the narrator says, I didn't kill her. That's true because she didn't exist and the narrator didn't exist and no murder took place because it's a novel. So what would it make, what sense would it make for the narrator then to say, actually I did kill her and I lied when I said I didn't? Who's the narrator lying to? We're not part of the novel. The narrator's not lying to us. Um, we knew it wasn't true to begin with. So I'm going through this rapidly, but this is a deep philosophical point about how we treat fiction as though it's reliable while at the same time not thinking that what it says is true. Um, and so we have a kind of substitute truth when we're reading fiction. 
a substitute for truth. Some philosophers want to simply use the word fictional, but that doesn't work either. Um, in other words, there are philosophers who will say, you shouldn't say that it's true that Jane marries Rochester, because she doesn't, because Jane doesn't exist and Rochester doesn't exist. And you might want to say, well, it's true in Jane Eyre that Jane marries Rochester. Um, but some philosophers will say, that doesn't quite make sense either, because what does it mean to say it's true in Jane Eyre? Um, so they will say stuff like, we have a, let's have a substitute word for true. That word will be fictional. And so we would then say, it is fictional in Jane Eyre that Jane marries Rochester. And that casts some light on, on um, the situation, which is that because it's fiction, the word that might, and this is what, um, in particular, the philosopher Kendall Walton says this, the word that might be the parallel to the word true in our world, that is, it is true that there's a cup on the table, in a fictional world, because this is the true world. Therefore, in a fictional world um, in which someone has a cup, has a fictional cup on a fictional table, we would, a fictional person has a fictional cup on a fictional table, we might say in a world of empty dreams, to go back to Paradise Lost, we might say it is fictional in this fictional world that of the fictional cup is on the fictional table. I don't like that vocabulary because it's totally misleading because you can have fictions within fictions and I think the whole idea of a fictional world is we use the same vocabulary that we use in the real world. The only difference is we never think that a sentence in a work of fiction is true. Um, true in that world is what we think, but because that world doesn't exist, what that means is that any sentence a narrator tells us, all that it needs to be true in a fictional world is the narrator says so, because the narrator is creating the fictional world as she narrates it. So how can you create, how, in a way you could say, maybe this is another paradoxical way of saying it, is that it is impossible for a narrator to lie to us. Not impossible to contradict <laughs> herself, narrators do. The New Yorker back in the day, if you know the New Yorker magazine, um, what they used to do, um, they don't do it anymore, but they are extremely rarely, but what they used to do at the end of articles is if they had a little space at the end of an article, um, they would put in funny typos that they had found in newspapers or a famous, or, or little squips. So there was always this little entertaining thing that they had found. Um, the most famous ones were called block that metaphor, where block that metaphor um, was they would find a sentence which just combined three or four metaphors in ways that made no sense at all. Um, like uh, um, he threw the ball as high as he could in an effort to fish for compliments um, um, while running in place. And you kind of know what it means, but um, metaphorically it makes no sense at all. Um, one of those little things that they used to have at the end of their articles was something called Our Forgetful Authors. Um, and it's when they found a, um, a, a contradiction in a work of fiction that 
neither the author nor the editor had picked up. So they would usually be things like, you know, at the beginning of a romance novel or something, someone would say, um, oh, I saw her raven black hair and it was just so wonderful. Um, and I fell in love with her immediately and then 300 pages later and finally she fell into my arms and I got to stroke her auburn hair and I was so happy. Um, and so there's a contradiction in the novel. Her hair has gotten, you know, the auburn hair that, I, that had made me fall in love with her in the first place. So, so you can't say, oh, maybe she changed her hair color. So what happens is the novelist forgets that he had given the character black hair, and now he's imagining the character with auburn hair. Fine. So there's a self-contradiction. Nevertheless, you could say in fiction, both those statements are true. If you say, but does the character have black hair or does the character have auburn hair? The answer is yes. On page 43, the character has black hair. On page 246, the character always had auburn hair. And you can do that in fiction. Self-contradiction isn't going to destroy a fiction. Or if it's obvious enough, if the self-contradiction is obvious enough, it will destroy a fiction. But it won't destroy um, your idea of truth. So fiction. It's impossible, again, this is the paradoxical statement, is that it would be impossible for a fictional narrator not to lie. Fictional narrators lie all the time. It would be impossible for a fictional narrator to lie to you, the reader. There is no sense to be made of the idea of a fictional narrator lying to a reader. Again, a movie like The Usual Suspects um, gets very close. Do people know about The Usual Suspects? Am I going to give you spoilers? Um, here's a way of understanding this, and this may or may not be a spoiler for The Usual Suspects. Forget I said anything. Um, generally, in movies, we will frequently have a voiceover telling us what happened. Someone will be interrogated um, by the cops, as happens at the beginning of The Usual Suspects, or um, in Murder, My Sweet, uh, one of the great film noirs. Um, uh, Philip Marlowe is being questioned by the police and he starts telling his story and he says, well, what happened was I was called in to um, look at this little case of a disappearance and, and then we get flashback. Rashomon is another very famous example of this. We get flashback. And the general convention in movies is that if a character is talking to another character, of course they can be lying. Movies are all about people lying to each other. All literature, all conflict, all drama is about people lying to each other. But if you get flashback, that's true. That's the convention in a movie. If you see it, rather than hearing a character say it, then it's true because what you're seeing is not the character delivering you the flashback. What you're seeing is the movie itself showing you what happened. And that can't or shouldn't be conceivable as a lie. Occasionally it is, but that's always pushing a boundary. If flashback weren't almost always true in the fictional world, it would be a completely useless technique. Um, it's only when it is actually focused on and thematized, as they say, um, that it becomes... Um, that you can, you can play with that convention at all, and as I say, only very rarely. So that idea then that um, narrators can't lie, um, that becomes really interesting because Jane never does lie. Um, of course she doesn't. And, um, but it turns out 
that it's not that she's telling us the truth and that's why we like her so much, um, because we like anyone who tells us the whole truth, because people are, gosh darn it, pretty good if you really get to know them. That's the um, idea that to understand all is to forgive all. Um, that's the convention that Bronte is working with, um, that, the, that we imagine that any novel that will appeal to the reader would appeal to readers, to any reader. And obviously we know in real life that's not true. We like novels that our friends don't and vice versa. Um, but the, if you like a novel, you are reading it as a reader. You are not reading it as whoever you are in reality, the particular person you are, you're reading it as the reader. And if you like the novel, what you are thinking is, here is a character that the reader will like. I know that because I am reading it, so I know what the reader will like. And under those conditions, if you like Jane Eyre, if you like Jane, and Charlotte Bronte has the um, guts to know that you will like Jane. Jane may not have the guts to know that you'll like her, but Charlotte Bronte knows that you will like her. Um, and even if she's wrong, it's your problem, not the reader's. But if you like Jane, what you will assume is anyone who actually read her story would like her. And anyone would include Mrs. Reed. And anyone would include Sinjin. So that the reader roots for Jane Anyone could read it, so anyone who knew her the way the reader does would root for Jane. And then the surprise, just to say it, at, to come at it from this direction then, is it turns out, no, there are people who know her just fine and don't root for her. Not surprising that Mrs. Reed's name is Reed. It's Reed versus reader. Um, that is there, that, that, I, I think the pun is there. Um, and the point is, yeah, she knows Jane, and no, she doesn't like her. And that tells you something daring about what Bronte is doing, which is she's not assuming that to understand all is to forgive all. She's not assuming that anyone would like Jane. She's actually assuming that you have to be kind of special, like Rochester, to really get and to like Jane. Um, Rochester is special. Um, on the other hand, he also puts her in a position which is outrageous, and yet he's special. Um, and that's what makes Rochester at least an interesting character for that reason. Um, okay, so there are a couple of things that I wanted to draw your attention to, and then I guess by mentioning the Aspirin Papers right now, I've mentioned the Aspirin Papers, um, a couple of things that I wanted to draw your attention to. One is go to, I know you have a different edition, and of course, you all have it with you, which is nice to see, because everyone's putting their books out. Um, at the beginning of chapter 11, um, we get a really interesting thing for a first-person narrator to say, which is, a new chapter in a novel is something like a new scene in a play. What's surprising about that? Yeah, Hannah. Yeah, it's definitely breaking the fourth wall. The fourth wall um, that is supposedly um, uh, between us and the novel. We're not supposed to think that Jane thinks that she's a character in a novel. 
A new chapter in a novel is something like a new scene in a play. And when I draw up the curtain this time, reader, you must fancy you see a room in the George Inn at Millcut with such large figured papering on the walls as in, as in rooms have, etc. Um, all this is visible to you by the light of an oil lamp hanging from the ceiling and by that of an excellent fire near which I sit in my cloak and bonnet, my muff and umbrella lie on the table, and I am warming away the numbness and chill contracted by 16 hours exposure to the rawness of an October day. So three things have happened there. One, she said this is a novel, and that's not what a novelist should say or have their narrator say. A novelist can say it if she's a third-person narrator. Jane Austen does it at the beginning of Northanger Abbey. Um, she starts reflecting on what heroines and novels should look like, and she complains of the fact that so many heroines don't waste their time reading novels. Um, and she says, my heroine reads novels um, because I, if, if, if novelists aren't going to have their characters read novels, it's going to be really bad for the novel trade. Um, so third-person narrators can do it, but it's a little bit strange for first-person narrator to do it. However, what it makes possible is for Jane to address the reader. Because a second question you can ask yourself, and this is another way of talking about the strange relationship, the strange borderland, the strange wall, the huge wall that gets broken, the huge fourth wall, um, is that um, the first-person narrator is addressing us who live in the real world. And so that appears in the word reader. That is, reader, here's what you should imagine. You're reading a chapter in a novel. Now, reader, imagine this. So the narrator of a novel is addressing a figure in a world that doesn't exist for her, which is our world. It's not that we, it's not, a, it's not a symmetrical relationship. It's not a mirror image. It's not that we are fictions in Jane Eyre's world as Jane Eyre is a fiction in our world. Um, Jane Eyre isn't spending her time reading in her window seat um, about um, people in Waltham, Massachusetts in 2016. It would be nice if she were, but she's not. That does happen, by the way. Stephen King likes to do that. If you've read the, um, any of the Dark Tower trilogy, uh, there's, or not trilogy anymore. Um, I read it when it was a trilogy. Um, there's a scene early on where a character um, is looking in a mirror. It, we start out on this other planet, in this other world, very strange other world, and a character um, looking in a mirror on Earth gets a glimpse of this world and he thinks it's really weird. It's just like that strange novel. What was it called? Actually, it's a strange movie. What was it called? The Shining. That's what it was. Um, so here you have a Stephen King character thinking of another Stephen King novel um, made into a movie that Stephen King didn't like. Um, so those games are fun, but again, they're fun because they're rare. Um, so two things then. Here's, your, here's a new chapter in the novel that I am telling you about, comma, reader. So she's addressing us directly. And it goes into the present tense which we're somewhat used to, but which was not a standard way of narrating 
in the 19th century. Narrations were almost always in the past tense. So there are these moments in Jane Eyre where we get present tense narration. Um, this isn't entirely original to Charlotte Bronte. This kind of thing was, it was um, something that um, her favorite novelist um, to whom she dedicated Jane Eyre, William, Th William Makepeace Thackeray, um, is doing the same thing in his great novel Vanity Fair. Um, in fact, a lot of people thought the dedication proved that Thackeray was the model for Rochester, and it was very, very embarrassing to Thackeray because he really, really wasn't. Um, but people assumed that um, they could figure out what happened in real life between Thackeray and Bronte, and they were just wrong. Um, but playing games with the fourth wall, as she's doing here, those are really interesting games in thinking about how fiction works. Then at the very end, we get Reader, I Married Him, and um, that's the hooray. You wanted the marriage plot. Here it is. Reader, I Married Him. Um, and that's um, a lovely and wonderful ending. I wanted to point out, and then I want to say one more thing about the end, but to point out one moment of what I think is extreme psychological acuity um, on the narrator's part, um, which is... Um, Right after the balked or blocked wedding, this is chapter 27, um, Jane Eyre finds out the truth. Um, it's terrible. She goes back to her room, um, and um, she is just distraught, and she doesn't know what to do, and she knows that what she has to do is leave Thornfield. And then this is about uh, a page into that chapter, um, and what she has assumed is that now that things have gone wrong, um, she's been shamed, she's been used. Um, Rochester, she assumes, having assumed that he was a better man than he was, she now assumes is a worse man than he is. But what he's doing is pretty bad. Um, and um, she then... It's the paragraph beginning, I rose up suddenly terror-struck at the solitude which so ruthless a judge haunted, that is, her own conscience, at the silence which so awful a voice filled. My head swam as I stood erect. I perceived that I was sickening from excitement and inanition, that is, she's hungry. Neither meat nor drink had passed my lips that day, for I had taken no breakfast. And with a strange pang, and the strangeness of the pang is what to notice there, I now reflected that long as I had been shut up here, no message had been sent to ask how I was or to invite me to come down. Not even little Adele had tapped at the door, and not even Mrs. Fairfax had sought me. Um, so there, remember we talked about using passives in your writing and how don't? Passives ought not to be used. Um, there she's using a really interesting passive. And what she says is, I reflected that long as I'd been shut up here, so that's a pseudo-passive since she shut herself up, but still it is. Long as I'd been shut up here, no message had been sent to ask how I was or to invite me to, invite me to come down. And then we get two actives, not even little Adele had tapped at the door. Not even Mrs. Fairfax had sought me. So why does she use the passive before talking about Adele and Mrs. Fairfax? Who is she not naming? Rochester. 
and she's not even naming him to herself, but that's what she is wondering about. That is, um, I said no to Rochester, no way, no how, and I had completely pushed him away, but now I'd been here all along, all this time, and he hadn't sought to communicate with me, and she is very sad about that. There is a part of her that she's not admitting to herself that wants Rochester to explain and explain away and make possible some kind of plot resolution which will allow them to get back together. And she knows, in some sense, because this is a realist novel, there are no ghosts in it, she knows that that can't be, and yet she wants it to be. And so we get what really is a profound moment of psychological insight on Bronte's part, which is the sense that Jane Eyre has of despair, but that very slight, and despair literally means, as you know, hopelessness. It's, it's um, sparrow means to hope, and despair means no hope. Um, she's in despair, and yet her despair hides some hope, that maybe she's despairing too much. This is what in movies is sometimes called a lost point. And if the hope is that Rochester can explain it to her and make it work. And she knows that he can't, but she hopes that he will. Um, and that seems pretty profound. Okay, last point um, is the question might, you might ask the question, why does the novel end with Sinjin? That is, um, we find out, and it's an interesting fact about the novel, you should think about this in the Aspirin Papers as well, um, that this novel itself is being written, or the story, or the account, or the autobiography, is being written um, 10 years after the marriage of Jane and Rochester. Um, so that might even be a surprise to be reminded of. Um, that is that there is a time that this is that this is being written. That Jane is 28 or 29. That Rochester is now pushing 50 or is 50 when this is being written. Um, why does that time matter? Why is it a surprise that there's a time when it's being written? That's one of those fictional world questions. That is, now you have to actually imagine Jane writing this, which is not something you would really imagine. But then we go to Sinjin, and the novel ends very strangely in a kind of third-person fashion. It's as though in order to make it a novel again, and not, and what will Jane Eyre write next, having written her autobiography? Will she write about the next 10 years? Will she write about Adele's marriage? Um, no, instead we kind of fade out by going into a third-person account of Sinjin far away, and getting older, and writing letters that are less and less interesting, and now it's been his last letter, she somehow knows that, and he will die, but she knows that as a third-person narrator. It's almost as though at the very end of Jane Eyre, the narrator subtly and imperceptibly becomes a third-person narrator. And it, it's a powerful effect, but the odd thing is that the novel ends with Sinjin. That's something to notice. I don't think that's anything you might expect, um, that it ends with that last page about Sinjin and what he's up to. And it's really a third-person effect at the end of the novel. 
it's powerful and strange and worth noticing. Okay, finish the aspirin papers if you haven't for tomorrow. If you have, read it two or three more times. No, just the aspirin papers. I mean, it would be great if you read all the Henry James you can read. Henry James's nephew wrote a little poem after James's death, which is... There's no algebra in heaven. Oh, there's no algebra in heaven or repeating dates and names, but only playing upon golden harps and reading Henry James. So heaven will be endless reading of Henry James, just so you know, before you decide where you want to go after you die. You may want to meet Satan in hell. You may want to go to heaven and read Henry James. Yeah, yeah, why not? Of course. Yes, sir.